BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Three, two, one. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. We call it bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show because it's bonus, right, D? Yeah. (laughs) Makes sense to me. Uh, As uh, we record this, I just want to let people know uh, I want to give a, a big shout out to young Dennis over there, our producer. The man has been playing in pain all day. Uh, he had root canal surgery done. To uh, He went over to uh, Dr. Larry Curley and Mo, <laughs> and they blew him up. Put a stick of dynamite in his mouth and blew him up. Those jerks. And uh, somehow or other. a guy he, named Shimp. Shimp. Oh, Shimp. He was oh. in the background. He's the worst. <laughs> no, uh, Joe Besser is the worst. Uh, and uh, okay, and our uh, our guest spoke before we've introduced our guest. He's on, so mad right now. I know. On bonus time on the Should Benjer- we redo it? No, 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 no. Are you kidding me? We never redo anything on the Ben Jarofsky show. No. Uh, all right. So the way we do this on bonus time is we allow our guest to introduce him or herself, say a little something about him or herself, and then, if so motivated, quote your favorite song, poem, whatever. Not to make the stakes high, but the immortal Mick Dumpke quoted, what, Greek? He's like, so all of a sudden he started a rating. I'm like, I am Mick Dumpke. And then he started a rating. So not a lot of pressure, you bonus guests. Introduce yourself. Tell people a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name is Aaron Cohen, and I'm the author of Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power, coming out in early September on University of Chicago Press. And I am also the author of Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, a book about Aretha Franklin's gospel soul album. Uh, and uh, a movie I just saw. What did you think of the movie? I thought it was sensational, by the way. Uh, and uh, talk about that briefly. I know that's not why you're here today, but Amazing Grace, the movie, was made in, I want to say, January of 1972. Exactly. At a church in Los Angeles. In Watts. Thank you. Watts being a neighborhood in Los Angeles. Yes. What are you, an editor correcting me all the time? Well, it's very important. Uh, very, it was Watts. No, no, no. It's very important because, I mean, as you know, mm-hmm. the different neighborhoods in Los Angeles have very different cultures. And the fact that she recorded this church in this predominantly African-American neighborhood was very, very important to what statement Aretha Franklin was making socially, culturally, and musically. And the film is wonderful about showing that. Absolutely. And for 10 trivia points, who is the man who plays the piano and sings in many of the songs with Aretha Franklin on that in that movie, Aaron Cohen? Go. Are you asking me, or do you want your audience to <laughs> <laughs> I want you, young man. James Cleveland. Excellent. James Cleveland. <laughs> I thought this was going to be like a prize for the listeners that... Uh, uh, you know, if you uh, get it right, you get a free, uh, you know, coffee from somewhere. I think we'll give you this. Um, who should we give the Miriam? 
uh, Marion uh, Williamson button that we have. That was like, wow. Where did you get that? Uh, one of our last guests on a bonus segment uh, is a supporter of Marion Wilson. Wasn't Williamson. beamed into you from Neptune? <laughs> no. All right. No Marion Williamson jokes. I'm, I'm feeling very uh, positive about her. I just saw India Ari uh, this Sunday at Grant Park with my wife and. Uh, uh, India Ari uh, has all these quotes on the screen behind her while she's performing. And one of the quotes was Marianne Williamson. So there you go. And like, what was the quote? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I can barely remember what happened this morning, let alone that quote. All right. Anyway, uh, Aaron, I thought it would be a good idea uh, to talk about your the book that will be coming out in September and do it in the context of some of the, the songs that illustrate the themes in the book. And you were so good to uh, pick, select five songs uh, that are sort of representative of Chicago, representative of uh, the mix. What did you call it? The crossroads of activism and soul, activism and music in the city of Chicago. So first talk a little bit about the book itself before we get into the songs. Well, what I wanted to do with my book was to look at the social and cultural changes that shaped soul music here in Chicago and how a lot of the musicians themselves became change agents either through direct political action themselves, through the empowerment that comes with them sometimes running their own labels, their own publishing companies, or claiming musical traditions, whether they were classical music or jazz as their tradition, and also asserting identity for themselves at a time when the city would have considered them to be largely invisible. And okay, and uh, so the first uh, person, the first uh, song we have is by Curtis Mayfield. Curtis Mayfield. So, D, can you kick it in? that song so much i just feel it so and i i'm familiar with the one uh aaron uh there's this live album i don't know where i picked it up uh, curtis mayfield in england i'm not making this up uh curtis mayfield in england at some club and he has his conga player and the guy gets a big solo in that song so every time i hear that song i think of the conga player coming in and curtis mayfield introducing him uh tell people the name of the song and some of its significance song move on up which is the title track of the book. And his longtime percussionist, the conga player you're referring to, is Master Henry Gibson. And he was a part of the Afro Arts Theater in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, Phil Caron was his early mentor. Phil Caron established the Afro Arts Theater to bring uh, an African consciousness to young people on the South Side. Some of the people who went to the Afro Arts Theater were Yvette Stevens, who changed her name to Shaka Khan, Maurice White, who would go on to form Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Master Henry Gibson, who was indeed a master percussionist. So he joins up with Curtis Mayfield and plays on the track that we just heard. And in the full length extended version, uh, he has a wonderful, wonderful solo, bringing that sort of Afrocentric feel to a song about empowerment, a song about uplift, a song about being proud of who you are, and a song about working collectively to make things better. And Curtis Mayfield sings it in that incredible voice of his. And it's such a moving anthemic song that I had to choose it as the title of the book. And also because I love hearing that song so much that I felt, well, okay, the more I talk about the book, the more they'll play the song, the more I get to hear it. 
and that's great. Uh, talk a little bit about Curtis Mayfield. Well, Curtis Mayfield, who uh, grew up in Chicago's Cabrini Green and briefly attended Wells High School, but he was so important on so many levels as a singer, as a songwriter, as a guitarist who had this incredible way of tuning his guitar to the black keys on the piano, a style of guitar that people like Jimi Hendrix and Ernie Isley uh, learned a lot from. But he also... Wait, what was it that Ernie Isley learned from? That whole guitar technique, that guitar style that Curtis Mayfield developed. And I'm about to see Ernie Isley this weekend at the Pitchfork Fest, so it'll be great to see. Hold on, time out. I I don't really follow uh, all the goings-on in music. You're telling me that the Isley Brothers are going to be playing at Pitchfork? On Saturday, yes. How did I not know this? <laughs> they got to get out more. I saw the Isley Brothers. They were at uh, Chicago Fest two years ago. It was Chicago just, Fest two years ago. Did I say Chicago Fest? <laughs> Isn't it? Where, 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 what's where, with the, the food? Taste, taste of, of Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> uh, yes, Taste of Chicago, not Chicago Fest. Then you're stuck Fest. in the Mayor Byrne administration. I know. No, I'm like, get out more. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, it's all those drugs you took for your uh, dental thing are affecting me. Uh, no, you're right. I sit corrected. Uh, it was Taste of Chicago, and there were only two Isleys left. For Ernie Tendrick. and Ron. Very good. And uh, and so, yeah, Ernie gets to play his solo. So Ernie le- learned his guitar techniques from Curtis. Go ahead. Well, indirectly, it was an influence through Jimi Hendrix. And But also, get to get back to Curtis, he also owned his own publishing. He owned his label, Curtom, with Eddie Thomas, who lives here in Chicago still. And there was this great combination of, musically speaking, uh, Curtis Mayfield, who taught himself to play guitar, taught himself to sing in this really unique style. And he paired that with the really wonderful arrangements of Johnny Pate, who was conservatory trained, who came up through the Chicago jazz jam sessions. They worked together uh, to craft these records, although uh, Move On Up was arranged by another great Chicago artist named Riley Hampton. But Curtis was just so important as a leader, as a spirit, as an influence, and his persona, his ideas just run throughout the narrative. What was his sort of uh, political worldview? Did he have one? Yes. Um, As I mentioned, as we were getting ready, um, you know, he was active in the 1983 Harold Washington campaign. When he started uh, the Curtom Records, he donated a portion to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And he moved to Atlanta in 1970, and he stated one of his reasons for moving to Atlanta was because African Americans were more politically involved there. And the funny thing about that is that uh, just recently, his protege, Major Lance's daughter, Keisha Lance Bottom, became mayor of Atlanta. So he saw into the political future, I guess, in ways that uh, we're just sort of coming to terms with now. And uh, you said, one of the things you said off uh, when, before we began the interview, when you were a young man, a very, uh, you were, I must have been a freshman in high school, you went and saw Harold Washington give a speech. Talk At about the this. Hotel Belmont. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very funny because I conclude the main part of the book by talking about all of the great musicians who were somehow involved in Harold Washington's campaign. Uh, Curtis Mayfield played at a big rally at UIC. Phil Caron, who I just mentioned, did a lot of musical events. Uh, Gene Barge, the great saxophonist and arranger, did a lot of events. And Syl Johnson also did a lot of campaigning for Harold Washington. It was a way of these musicians from this 1960s and 70s era to 
work on behalf of this, you know, political campaign. And, you know, when I went to the rally when I was 14, I don't remember any of the musicians because what I remember most was standing next to Muhammad Ali. Yeah. So his presence. Sort Did of Muhammad was, Ali sing a song, cut a, a record? Muhammad Ali. He cut records with Sam Cooke in the early 1960s. No. And um, you can find, if you look online, you can find a version of uh, Muhammad Ali singing Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here with uh, <laughs> Sam Cooke. There's a great photo which is available of Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke together. And um, But actually, uh, Muhammad Ali's first wife, Sonji, uh, also recorded as Sonji Clay. And she was a really good singer. Yeah. Um, you know, And I was talking with uh, Willie Woods, who played uh, trombone on a session that Sonji was recording. And he said that um, Sonji Clay's husband was there in the studio and they, you know, <laughs> they they knew it. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, the, the 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 best of those singers, though, um, just for a moment on a tangent on one of my favorite topics, nineteen seventy heavyweights, Joe Frazier, who fought all these before your time, Aaron. Uh, Joe Frazier had like four mortal fights with Mom and Ali. Three, Th uh, uh, Thriller in Manila. Madison uh, Square Garden. Madison Square Garden. You're right. Uh, and a three. Damn, man, I didn't know that. Uh, and uh, what was the third? The second one. What was the third one? It was a thrill in Manila, the Madison the Square Garden. Garden. And what was the third fight? I'm blanking on it. The third Joe. It'll come to me later in the show. Anyway, he had a great, he had his own little uh, band, Joe Frazier did. All right. Yeah, talented uh, guy. Uh, and uh, so that's Curtis Mayfield. Uh, move on up. What is the second song that you have? The Shy Lights, for God's sake, give more power to the people. We have to cut these off. I know. So it's way well, you too can, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, I listen to the whole album, yeah, actually. Yeah. Not just the song, but the whole album with that great um, low voice from uh, Creadal Jones, Red Jones. The Shy Lights, uh, Marshall Thompson, who's still, you know, very active in the scene here in Chicago. But uh, the Shy Lights were uh, fronted by Marshall Thompson. And the songs were mostly written by Eugene Record, who also sang with the group. Uh, very talented singer, songwriter, and... They recorded, um, you know, here with a lot of the arrangements done by the great Tom Tom Washington, and this was a song that they really became a political anthem, for, especially for the Black Panther Party, who would uh, go with the Shy Lights when they would perform. And this, you know, was anthemic. It was a rallying cry, and, and you know, I, I really wanted uh, Tom Tom Washington to tell me how he got that siren sound in the beginning. Um, He's not yet spilled his secrets on that, but um, very incredible, just big sound. I mean, if you want to like get a sound to really get the people to mm -hmm. listen to you and you want the big, through the big amps and everything, I mean, that's that's the way to go. What uh, what year did that song come out? That was uh, 1970. 1970. So obviously it uh, was way before your time. Uh, you're, you came of age in the 80s. That's when uh, you went to high school, late 80s. Uh, so how did you find your way to songs like that? 
Well, again, music, great songs are eternal. They endure, um, you know, and certainly wasn't hard to acquire these records um, because as you go through Chicago in the 80s and today, and there are so many places to get such great vinyl, um, you know, that it's just there. It's just everywhere. And if you have open ears, open eyes, open, you know, you're receptive to things. I mean, they're, all the music's out there. And so I would just find it by digging, I guess. But how did you know about this music? I mean, what, what led you to start listening to uh, R&B or soul records from 12, 15 years before you were even born? Well, there were some certain very important people who were on the radio back in the 60s and 70s who were still on the radio when I was coming up. People like Richard Begee. And it was... You know, Richard Begee was, you know, doing Dusty's radio or whatever it was called at whatever time. So the airwaves, they weren't completely absent from. And I always liked the feel, liked the sound and just became addicted and wanted to hear more. So there was no it was there was not one person who, who introduced it to you, like an older brother or a cousin or a neighbor or anything like that. Nobody. No like individual. That. Person, but when you were coming up, people, did you have friends or did you have a community people who listened to the music or were you sort of like alone in your room listening to it? Well, I mean, there were people who I hung out with who would go to record stores together and we'd hang out in record stores when I probably should have been doing other things, but <laughs> we're not going to talk about homework, that. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're not going to talk about that right now. That's, that's not crucial because, you know, people should, you know, work hard at yeah. their <laughs> school and everything. But, um, you know, I think for me too, it was, uh, after listening to the records, um, combining that with my interest in history, my interest in the city, my interest in Chicago history, my interest in American history, African-American history, and it's all part of a piece. So it's not just, you know, sitting in my room, listening to records, although that's a big part of it, or going to record stores, although that's a big part of it, but finding the continuum between the music, the records, the people, their lives, their story and how those stories are reflected through the broader American, African-American and American experiences. Yeah. I got to tell you, this is just me speaking for myself. I was so isolated and I was the kid in the room listening to the songs. And uh, they for me, it was a solitary thing. Uh, so I'm kind of envious of you that you actually took it to the next degree. You went out to the record stores, started exploring, going to clubs, etc. But I would, I could, I have this just, so many memories, so many days spent listening to a transistor radio, absorbing these songs. And Aaron, my problem is, as I always tell Dennis, I haven't stopped listening to, started listening to new music since 79. So I'm like continually listening to these songs. Uh, so for well, instance, when I hear, uh, for, for God's sake, give more power to the people, that takes me back to like, I think my freshman year of high school or, you know, that kind of thing. Well, one thing I would like to bring up, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, is because I really believe that all of this music should be part of high school curricula, especially here in Chicago. Uh, I think it's very important that high school students in Chicago be taught about these musical traditions, who these people are, what their music means to people, what the circumstances were them creating the music, uh, Ben, you and I are both from Evanston, and Patty Drew, great R&B singer, is also from Evanston. We didn't know this growing up, yeah. and um, so it would be really great to let people who are students now just be some so ingrained and have it be... Well, if you were teaching a class uh, on Curtis Mayfield, who... I 
in my opinion, this is just me speaking, I'm no musical expert, is one of the 10 greatest uh, of my generation musicians. I mean, there's the Beatles, there's Marvin Gaye, there's Stevie Wonder, Curtis Mayfield, in my humble opinion, is on that list. I agree. Okay, and uh, yeah, wow, thank you. <laughs> no, I agree 100%. I, I just love Curtis Mayfield. So, so but w- it's hard for me to articulate, Aaron, how great Curtis Mayfield is because so much of his music is is linked to like uh, like a movie, like a Superfly movies I saw when I was a kid, and, and it's just so part of a generation. My growing up, you know what I mean, my teenage years. But so, how would you convey the importance of Curtis Mayfield? to students today. One of the things that I would like to do is if I was to teach a class on Curtis Mayfield is put him in tradition of, as I mentioned earlier, he and Eddie Thomas owned Curtis's, they own their own publishing, they own their own record company. I would put that ownership in the context of the history of African-American ownership of specifically arts related organizations and companies. How, you know, even though Curtis Mayfield was a trailblazer, in terms of being an incredibly young man when he owned himself and he owned his masters, that he was part of a history of African-Americans who were doing that. Um, Immediate example would be Sam Cooke, who came out of Chicago earlier. But then with Sam Cooke, of course, he was famous when he started his own record company. Curtis Mayfield was basically doing it from scratch. Mm -hmm. So I would talk about that history. I would talk about what his songs meant to the civil rights movement people get ready, move on up. I would talk about, again, his musical contributions and what made his music stand out. Um, talk about his to guitar technique, and it would be great to have musicians come in and demonstrate. So those would be the areas where I would talk about, as well as where he grew up, what public housing was like at that time, what um, the movie business, you mentioned Superfly, um, I don't know if I would show the Superfly film to kids, but I would definitely talk about that film, that era of film. Superfly, just to tell you this, has not aged well. I watched Superfly about a year and a half ago. I was very disappointed how bad it was and could not believe there was a time in my life when I loved Superfly. So I was really kind of disappointed in myself, actually. Well, you know, I saw it actually again a couple of years ago. At the old the, Superfly, not the real one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the real one. Um, <laughs> the real one. At, you know, the Smithsonian's African American History Museum, because there was a weekend mm-hmm. devoted to Curtis Mayfield, and I saw it. Uh, with Curtis's eldest son, Curtis III, and Johnny Pate, who did the score with Curtis on the film. And one of the things actually I liked about watching it was just the scenes of New York City Mm -hmm. in the early 70s, because that New York City no longer exists. But I tell you, I mean, as the film has not aged well, the music has endured. The music has stood out then and now. And I think it also exemplifies how important the music is and the fact that it is still great even though the film is mm, has its problems. All right, now uh, we, I'm not going to get into a black exploitation uh, movie discussion. We will be having one. I should tell listeners we're going to have uh, we're going to have a whole special show dedicated. We have three filmmakers coming in. We're going to be analyzing, breaking down Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in America, and we'll be doing a lot of black exploitation uh, discussion with uh, we have these three fanatical uh, filmmakers who come in and love black exploitation. But having said that, in your humble opinion. You were going to say something? Yes, actually, you know, Superfly gets a lot of attention, but I think another film that Curtis Mayfield was involved in that should get more attention 
was a film called Short Eyes. Are you familiar with that film? No, is that the uh, Short Eyes is the one about the prison? Yes. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And um, it's very hard to watch because yes. of the subject matter. It's br brutal. Some brutal, brutal scenes. Yeah. But I think that it's a very realistic depiction of this situation and this holding. It's not a prison. It's where prisoners are held who yeah. can't make bail. And um, I don't want to go into details about the plot, but... Uh, not only did Curtis Mayfield do the score, which is a great score, he also put up his money to produce it, taking a huge risk, and he also acted in it. In a if you call what he does acting, no, I think it's good actually. It's right. no, no, he's, he's Sorry, actually Curtis, yeah. no. I mean, it's a small role, <laughs> yeah. but he does it very well, and I think that for all the attention that Superfly gets, uh, Short Eyes should get more attention, but it's such a hard film to watch. I can understand why it oh, doesn't. Oh, it's brutal. It's really hard to watch. All right, in your humble opinion, best uh, musical score accompanying a black exploitation movie, uh, what movie would that be? Well, Superfly. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I would say Trouble Man. Trouble Man's very Trouble good. Trouble Man, the no. opening scene of Trouble Man. I'm not, I'm not putting Trouble <laughs> Man down. I'm not putting Shaft down. I'm not putting let's do it again down, all which are great. Yeah. But um, no, Superfly's number one. Uh, wow, okay. Trouble Man, Shaft, Trouble they're man. great. No, they're great. I'm going to have to go with Trouble Man. Okay. Uh, and, uh, Good choice. Uh, now, so uh, for God's sake, give more power to the people. How would you teach that to a kid? I would teach about the Black Power Movement. I would teach them about the Black Panthers, especially the local Black Panthers, uh, Fred Hampton. Um, there's a great clip of um, Fred Hampton talking about the importance of education. Uh, to someone who wants him to get involved in a project of his. And Fred Hampton insists on education being a part of it. So certainly within that context, I would play that particular track, um, you know, and it would be great to have some of the surviving Black Panthers come to class and talk, including Shaka Khan. Mm. Uh, and uh, all right, so let's see your third song uh, that you picked. You, uh, you have that, D, ready to go? Marlena Shaw. Marlena Shaw, Woman of the Ghetto. Talk about that. Talk about Marlena Shaw. Marlena Shaw was very interesting. She was a jazz singer and still is, great singer. And she was. She told me that she wrote the lyrics to that song on an airplane from New York to Chicago because she had a gig at the Playboy Club here. And the lyrics just came to her. And so she wrote them on the back of a bag. And uh, unfortunately, she still doesn't have that bag, which would be really worth something now. Yeah. But um, it's an example, a great example of consciousness of what was going on in cities like Chicago, in the ghetto, as she calls it, and calling for people, especially legislators, to get more involved, more aware of what was happening. Now, while the lyrics are very bleak, uh, the music is... So I don't want to say groovy, but uh, not only it. okay. <laughs> not only does the music have this great groove uh, yeah. by a great producer at uh, Chess Records, Richard Evans, along with another producer, Charles Stepney, but it also you know brings in African instruments. You can hear um, the mbira uh, played on it as well as the drumming. So um, it also showed the cultural richness of these cities, culturally, artistically, what was so important and valuable while her lyrics are so 
uh, downbeat and bleak. And where, I think who were some of the musicians playing? If it's at chess, who were some of the background? Do you know? Um, you know, that was the thing was I was trying to get discographical information for the book and I couldn't get information, but um, I can tell you who were the chess studio musicians were at that time. I mean, there were people like Maurice White drummer. and um, the great guitarist, uh, Phil Upchurch, the great drummer, Morris Jennings, and, you know, Gene Barge would play saxophone and uh, Reynard Minor would play piano. And um, so, you know, Pete Cozy would play guitar as well. So there was such a great, great musical crew there at uh, Chess uh, Cadet, which is a subsidiary of Chess. Um, you know, uh, in 2008, Universal Music, which owns the chess archive, there was a big warehouse fire that destroyed a lot of the master recordings, including many of the recordings uh, that, that chess recorded. Uh, Jody Rosen did a big piece about that for the New York Times, and that might have impacted what lists are for discographical information. I know that a lot of great masters of a lot of the great people who recorded at chess, blues, soul, and jazz were lost in that fire. So she wrote the... Uh, that was a bit of a digression. Yeah. But, no, uh, I actually it think you me, and I... It still gets me very mad. No, I, I think, think you and I it. had a conversation once about this, either on the air or at a, uh, somewhere else, because I, I, I remember the article. You were the one who alerted me to the article. I remember reading it. And uh, uh, and then I think I had a conversation with you. So, all right. So Marlena uh, Shaw, she, she wrote... She's a singer. Yeah. She's a singer. She wrote this uh, on, Richard Evan, on the plane. Richard yeah. Evans came up with the music mm -hmm. along with, you know, Charles Stepney. And it's just great arrangement, great sound. Um, her voice is great. So, um, and has a fantastic message that still endures. And know what that message is. You know, that message is we need to listen to what's going on in these cities across the country. And she mentioned Chicago, Detroit. Um, not only should we listen to what's going on in terms of the problems that she states in her lyrics, but we should also listen to the art of the people from these places as well. And that's what comes across through the music. When, when, uh, so when she comes in the studio, she's written these lyrics down. How long does it take uh, this consortium of great musicians to figure out exactly what to do? It, it, it seems as though there's not a whole lot of uh, pre-production planning. In other words, sit down. Well, they were professionals. I mean, these were top of the line people yeah. and they worked as a team. And, you know, that really helped make it so that they could just churn these out really quickly. Yeah. And I, they didn't have a lot of time in studio either because they had other jobs, they no, had to earn money and stuff. I, I, and, and made me think of this a uh, completely different scene, but sort of similar. I was just watching a documentary of the Beatles, Eight Days a Week. Have you seen this documentary? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty good documentary. Ronnie Howard uh, made it. Anyway, they talked about how in the early days when they were cut a record, uh, John and Paul would have written the lyrics. They'd sit down, they'd go through like a run-through, you know, everybody would just sort of practice playing it. A couple more, like, boom, that's it. I'm like, God dang, you know. But then when they get to the later recordings, it took longer. Uh, Sergeant Pepper's, the 68, known as the White Album, Abbey Road. I mean, those took longer. Yeah. They had studio time at that time, which artists in Chicago did not have. Never, ever. And like Curtis Mayfield, did he ever Oh, have? Curtis Mayfield was, yeah, yeah, he could, you know, but the chess artists, um, you know, they had to do. And what's interesting too, comparing the Beatles to chess, is that I mentioned the producer arranger, Charles Stepney, yeah. um, and he was very much influenced by George Martin's recording techniques. Uh, he felt that George Martin was more talented than the Beatles themselves, <laughs> but um, Charles Stepney did not have the budget that the Beatles had to do these psychedelic kind of effects. So he had to 
cut splice tape. He had to do all these things by hand that was done by hand in England too, but he had, you know, less equipment to do so, less resources to do so. And uh, so that is Marlena Shaw, Woman of the Ghetto. The next song, Syl Syl Johnson, Is It Because I'm Black? Sounds so good, man. I wish you could play the whole thing, but I understand you can't. Uh, Talk about that. Syl Johnson, who, you know, recorded some popular records before then, and he um, told me that this song was a reaction to Martin Luther King's killing. And it was his response as to wondering why he was murdered and why he was assassinated. He also thought about his own experiences uh, in labor unions in Chicago and some of the discrimination issues that he felt and experienced. And so he turned that into a song and an album too. It was really the first real concept album in R&B because all of the songs on the album dealt with class racial issues and was very bleak, but ended with a message of hope. But there were no love songs, no romantic songs on this album, also called Is It Because I'm Black? And, you know, the song itself was very stark. There weren't the horns. There weren't the sort of, you know, grooves, the dance grooves that, you know, you would have associated with so much of Chicago soul music at that time, soul music itself. I mean, it still had that direct connection to the blues itself. And he's asking the question. He's trying to come up with, why is the situation is what it, why is it what it is? And, um, very stark, very moving. And it's still, I mean, when he still performs it today, um, still has that deep, deep resonance. Uh, Syl Johnson from Chicago. Oh yes. Yeah. Well, he's originally from down South. He, and one of the things about Syl Johnson is he kind of makes some stuff up about himself, but he was originally from the South, but came up as a young man through the migration, but he essentially grew up in Chicago and he created all of his artistic work here in Chicago. And you talk about, except for later when he recorded at high records in Memphis, but um, you know, he came up to Chicago recorded and co-owned uh, Twinite records, which released this track and, Later, he recorded at High Records in Memphis, but much of his really good records were done here in Chicago. You, you talked, you've already said twice when I, ta- when you, when I interviewed Syl Johnson, when I interviewed Marlena Shaw. So You interviewed them? No, I said, oh, you, yeah. you said it. I, I've never had the pleasure. Uh, so how, did, how do you track down these musicians and get interviews with them? Well, with Syl Johnson, um, you know, he's here in Chicago, so it wasn't that hard to reach him. And I first interviewed him for the Chicago Tribune and went to his home and we spoke for a good long time. And then, so I had his number. So I called him again when I started working on the book. And the first chapter of the book that I wrote was about the making of his album, Is It Because I'm Black? And I spoke with him, uh, the bassist, Bernard Reed, Byron Bowie, who does the arrangements. And so we had another conversation and we've spoken a few times since then. 
I can't remember how I got in touch with Marlena Shaw originally. Um, oh, that was through her agent. Um, that was through her, her publicist. So, um, yeah, that was finding her after publicist and then her agent and then her. And uh, generally speaking, when you meet someone of these musical legends, are they open-minded to talking about their past? Are they closed mouth? Or what's it like? Most are open-minded. Most are very happy to talk about their past. Have you ever had anyone who said, no, I don't want to talk? Yes. And? So, we didn't. <laughs> who are some of those people? I'm not going to say. Uh, that's no wonder. You can't get it. Pry this information out of Aaron. Yes, Cohen. you can, because it's in my book. Oh, okay. It's in his book. Which can be found in September when? Well, it comes out in September, but you can order it now uh, from the University of Chicago's website, which is press, P-R-E-S-S dot uchicago dot E-D-U. It won't arrive until September, but you should also buy it at an independent bookstore. Yes. There are so many here, great... Here. There are so many great independent bookstores in Chicago and let me talk to you about a couple of them I will be appearing at seminary co-op on October 10th and that's in Hyde Park mm -hmm. I will be appearing at bookseller on October 24th and that's in Lincoln Square we'll play music we'll play full-length tunes we won't just play snippets and I'll be speak, <laughs> speaking no because you know no um, I hear you yeah, I hear that yeah not just no, snippets, not, it's not your fault not your fault not your fault so seminary <laughs> seminary co-op October 10th you can buy the book there uh -huh. or you can buy it at bookseller on October 24th and we'll you can talk about the book for all of those listening in Iowa City, I will be at Prairie Lights Books in Iowa City on October 26th wow and how'd you cut that deal I write books, man. <laughs> Iowa City. Iowa City, October 26th. Okay. I want to give a shout out to Iowa, where my wife, LaVon, is from, and where All my right. mother-in-law, Virginia, and my brother-in-law, Steve and Gary, live. So shout out to Iowa. They're so, from Iowa City? They're from Dubuque, Iowa. Dubuque, Iowa. And I will be at Iowa City, Prairie Lights, October 26th. And I will be at Boswell Book Company in Milwaukee on November 2nd. So, um, you know, those are my- head country? I love yeah. Milwaukee. I okay. love Milwaukee. I love Madison. And I will be in Milwaukee November 2nd. So, oh, that's cool. um, and that's the Midwestern dates. We're working on West Coast and East Coast dates now. But I think most of your listeners are here in the Midwest. Right. Absolutely. We'll have you back on uh, in September when the book is out. We'll probably do this conversation all over And again. you know what we can also do in September is we can have a trivia contest where I can give the book away to the winner. Yes. Let's do that. Have to, and bring you on during the regular live show so we can get some of our other. Get you on with Monroe Anderson. Hey, yeah. Monroe. Because I thought your trivia question was for the uh, general audience. No, no, it was for you. That oh, was for me. Okay. okay well, yeah. The trivia question was for you, young man. Okay. Well, anyway, but I can't for, remember what the trivia question was. It really wasn't about a Aretha Franklin. Oh, it was and James about Aretha Cleveland. Franklin. Yes, very good. All anyway. right. Here we go for 10 trivia points. For, well, since here, you mentioned Well, so ahead. that's the thing. So, like in September, I'll come back, I'll bring the book, and we'll have a good, you know, trivia question. The question won't be which musician did not talk to Aaron Cohen. That won't be the question. <laughs> oh, but uh, so um, I don't you know. know well, maybe it um, will be. <laughs> All right, for ten trivia points, right here. Uh, you you mentioned the Aretha Franklin concert, uh, the Aretha Franklin movie. For ten trivia points, what rock stars showed up uh, unannounced for the recording of that record? Aaron Cohen. Is this for me? Yes. Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts. Very good. I knew you'd know the Jagger part. I didn't know you would know the Charlie Watts Charlie part. Watts is my favorite stone. So Why do you um, say that? Because of his musical chops, his attitude, his you know bearing, what he brings to the band. Um, I love Charlie. Are you a Rolling Stones fan? I like the Rolling Stones very much. Mm -hmm. but, um, but especially Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. And all of a sudden in this movie, this 
great movie, which I urge everybody to check out, the uh, the Aretha Franklin Amazing Grace movie. All of a sudden, there's Mick Jagger in the background. And Charlie Watts. And Charlie Watts, yeah. That, uh, you're right. Charlie there. doesn't dance like Mick does. You know? Mick doesn't really dance either. He's sort of like, whoa. <laughs> so let him hear your uh, Mick Jagger impression. That's gonna be Hello, good. Aaron. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm on that one, too. This is my uh, John Lennon. So, you know, uh, the Bills, uh, we're bigger than Jesus. Uh, we got to get that impression to Iowa City. <laughs> we'll go over there. We'll go over here. Here I am in Iowa City, man. John Lennon. Uh, Stand right. up and do impressions. So It's my Lou Reed. Uh, uh, that's... Uh, all right, let's see. We have one more song, and this is the Pharaoh's Freedom Road. That's so good. Yeah. The Pharaohs, yeah. <laughs> Talk about the Pharaohs. Pharaohs are totally awesome. And yeah. I mentioned Willie Woods, the trombonist, who was a big part of the Pharaohs, the leader. Uh, well, they are different leaders, but um, he was the main main guy who I spoke to from the group, along with Durf Recklaw, who was a percussionist at chess and played on a lot of sessions, but also with the Pharaohs. Anyway, uh, the Pharaohs were the house band at the Afro arts theater, which I mentioned earlier, which Phil Karan had started based on his own Afrocentric philosophy. And that was where Maurice white Shaka Khan would hang out. And the Pharaohs were the R and B group that were there, you know, at the Afro arts theater. And they uh, also intersected with a whole bunch of other groups like the art ensemble of Chicago would tour with them. And, you know, some of the people in the Pharaohs went on to join Earth, Wind and Fire and the Phoenix Horns, people like the saxophonist Don Myrick. And the thing about the Pharaohs were, you know, they brought this consciousness, this uh, Afrocentric consciousness to straight ahead R&B and funk in a really great way and so lively. So, you know, you, just so upbeat and must have been incredible to see back in the day. Um, and they also brought in, you know, African musicians, African players, uh, African style of playing. And the song, you know, is all about what the song is, freedom, personal freedom, collective freedom, group freedom, going toward that, reaching towards it. And the song itself makes you want to follow that path. Yeah. And uh, Freedom Road, when did that come out? That was, gosh, I wish I had the book in front of me because I wrote it all down. Yeah. Uh, around 1970. Uh, it's good. Around 1970 is fair enough. Uh, because when I, I hear that. My dates are like, oh, we've got to write it down here. Um, <laughs> when I hear that opening, it reminds me of another song which has nothing to do with Chicago, was not recorded by a Chicago group, but was really popular. And I can go back to my little room where I was listening to my transistor. It was a song in the 70s. Uh, I want to say it was the 70s called Funky Nassau. I don't know if you've ever heard that mm -hmm. song. I will not sing the song. No, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, but you know, funkin' that. So, but doesn't it sound like? Well, you know, I mean, the thing is, it's like because the Pharaohs were such a big influence on Earth, Wind, and Fire, 
And Earth, Wind, and Fire was such a big influence on other groups in the 70s that yeah. you can see those steps. So it's not unrelated. Yeah. I actually think Funky Nassau might have come out before this one. Hold on. We'll look it up on my phone right here. What do you think? Which came out first, Funky Nassau or Freedom Road? You know, my friend James Porter is better with dates than I am. It's right. not written down in front of me. All uh, right. Here we go. Number. Hold on. We'll say Funky Nassau. Uh, uh, here we go. Do you know the name of the group? Yeah. Uh, you do know the name of the group? Oh, you don't? No, I don't blame you for not knowing the name of the group. They're not from Chicago. It, they're called the beginning of the end. That's right. And the f- opening line is, Nassau's gone funky, Nassau's gone soul. We got a dog on beat now. We got a, Anyway, I won't sing it, but it has a very similar yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, opening yeah. thing. And when I heard that, anyway, Funky Nassau, one of my favorite songs, 1971. So, yeah. uh, Freedom Slightly Road. Slightly later. Yeah, so Slightly. maybe they took it from um, Freedom Road. Although Earth, Wind, Fire was getting off the ground in 71. They weren't as known as they would become known later. Now, uh, I do not know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Did you ever get a chance to, uh, <laughs> yeah, why not? to inter- uh, interview Maurice White? No, he passed uh, before I could interview him. That he, of course, is the um, heart and soul of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah. And uh, here you go. Another trivia question for you, young Aaron Cohen. Oh, and if you get this one correct, Dennis will buy you lunch. Awesome. Uh, and uh, what high school did Maurice White graduate from? Well, he grew up, well, he, he was from Memphis originally, but he went to the Henry Horner Homes and then went to uh, Cass or Crane. Crane, Crane Technical Crane, High School. Crane Aaron Tech. Cohen is correct. Give him something. All right. Cool. <laughs> Uh, Aaron, we're going to bring you back when your book comes out and do this again. This is do so I get much the lunch? Uh, yeah, you got a lunch. Dennis, get him some. All you, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get him some McDonald's. Uh, and uh, so one more time, the name of the book, when does it come out, and uh, when can people get it? Move on up. Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power is the name of the book. University <laughs> of Chicago Press, and you can get it in September, but you can order it now. It'll arrive in September, so you might as well just go to an independent bookstore and get it then, or go to the Seminary Co-op on October 10th, or the bookseller on October 24th at one of my events, and pick it up then and there, and well, we can hang out and talk about it. Well, uh, you're, I know you're really good friends with McDumkey, who's my partner in crime at First yeah. Tuesday, and we've been talking about having you come to a First Tuesday Would show. Would love to. Would love spin to. spin the records, and then we can play the full records there, talk about it. McDumkey, but people don't know this about young McDumkey. Huge music. I'm not making this up. This guy knows a lot about music. Oh, absolutely. Music. He does. Uh, he does. And uh, so. And uh, so the, do you, Ben. And so do you, Dennis. Yeah. Well, no. Well, I, <laughs> again, my 1965 to 79, that's kind of me. You know what I'm saying? I don't really know anything after it. I don't know anything after it at all. So when uh, Rapper's Delight hit, you left the building? Uh, yeah. I actually know Rapper's Delight because where have I heard? You told me about it, didn't it? Did I? Yeah, I think you did. Yeah, I but know. Yeah, I don't know. I'll you, play you. For 10 a... trivia points. Oh, boy. Here we go. Who was the producer of Rapper's Delight? Sylvia Robinson. Excellent. God dang. Look at the brain oh, of Brad. This is our next <laughs> podcast bonus with you. It's trivia. <laughs> ah, but here, check this out. Oh, check this out. Yeah. When I come to when I come to the first Tuesday, I okay. will play you a version of Rapper's Delight that was recorded here in Chicago by people you know, but I'm not going to tell oh, you who they okay. are yet. All right, I, I, that I know them, but the oh thing about no Tony people Frank you do know. <laughs> no, Sylvia Robinson, she's the lady. When I, I was a senior in high school, there was a song. Uh, it, it, oh, what the heck was the name? Love was, is strange. Uh, no, Sylvia did the song where she was like making love in the song. 
In the song, yes, Sylvia. Uh, uh, the pillow song. What was it called? Pillow the? talk. Pillow talk. Yeah. Da, 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 da. yeah anyway, uh, I'm not going to sing "Pillow Talk" by Sylvia. And then Damn. later, <laughs> later on, I realized that the same Sylvia who sang "Pillow Talk." I mean, I was just a kid when I heard "Pillow Talk." I loved. Can I share this with you, Aaron, please? I mean, I loved Pillow Talk. I had such okay. a crush on Sylvia. Yeah. <laughs> and then I learned she was like this big time record producer who produced one of the first you know hip-hop songs so rap songs whatever anyway well i will play you the chicago version uh which was recorded around that time when i met the first tuesdays but i'm not gonna tell you who's on it right now all right uh i, I probably don't know who they are anyway oh you do i do you do oh. yeah but i'm not gonna say right now They're probably political all right uh that uh is the great chewy era. garcia <laughs> chewy garcia Lori lightfoot and Richard danny Daly. solis <laughs> <laughs> danny solis danny did the taping of it oh. get it oh, get it, oh i see oh, oh yes i read that in the paper today <laughs> ben's got a million of them aaron cohen thank you very much thank you so much for having me so great to be here yeah so great uh, to talk we'll bring you back and we'll probably get you at uh, first tuesday i would love to thank you so much all right everybody that's another ben's bonus take care everybody taking us out funky nassau (laughs) yeah come on (laughs) nassau's gone funky nassau's gone soul we've got a dug on beat now we're gonna call our very own Nassau Rock and Nassau Road. Damn, that's a good song.